Well, the best advice I could give myself as a dad was to be a good husband. Hi there. Welcome and thank you for listening in. I'm super stoked to have you with me. My name is Philip Hartman and Being Dad is a show for dads. I meet and speak to unique dads, asking them to impart their wisdom and to share their experiences as dads with us. The reason for being dad is my own story. I became a father five times within 13 months. Yes, five times, 13 months. I was seriously underprepared and I struggled to find inspiring content for myself. By meeting and connecting with these men, I'm trying to learn all there is about being a dad. We cover heart-to-heart topics between two dads and our aim is to inspire other fathers. And with this, hopefully we can make a positive impact on families around the world. My next dad, Dr. John Rosemond, is truly interesting and very thought-provoking. As a family psychologist, he is often regarded as a renegade in his field, and this is thanks to his views on parenting and family psychology. John is 72, he's been married for 52 years, and he has two children and seven grandchildren. John is an American columnist, a public speaker, and author of 11 best-selling parenting books. He has a master in psychology, and he's worked with families since 1971 in the field of family psychology. He himself refers to himself as an opposing voice to psychological correctness. I was truly intrigued by the things that John had to say. In the session, we talk about his ideas of authority for parents and discipline for children. He shares his own views on parenting. He talks about the parenting shift from being adult-centered to being child-centered in the 60s and 70s and the detrimental impact he has seen as a result. We cover speech characteristics, codependency, how dads can support mums, and be marriage-focused. And of course, John's concept of the hump of parenting, which is quite interesting. As I said, I found the episode super thought-provoking, and I urge you to take a listen for yourself, even if you don't like everything he says. The most powerful takeaways for me as a dad were, be a husband and wife first, and a mother and a father second. I must not add okay at the end of a request to my child, as it becomes a question and suddenly there's an option for no. One of the greatest gifts I can give my children is the understanding that they are capable human beings, not solving every problem in life, but being capable of dealing with it. Last thing, thank you for all your emails on this. The easiest way to book me for a keynote speech on how to build successful families is via my website, dedicated.com, or simply reach out on LinkedIn. I'll put the link in the show notes. It'll be fun, and together we'll empower some dads. Right, without any further ado, here is Dr. John Rosemond. Thank you for listening. John, I am super stoked that I finally have you on the show. We talked in, I think we started conversation in June, and then we had a conversation in August and then September, and finally now in November we are speaking, and I'm really, really happy. Thank you for being on. Well, I'm very pleased that we're uh, we finally connected as well, Philip. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks. So just for context, um, a few of the things you said, I know that you are 72, you are married for 52 years, which is quite impressive. You have two kids um, and you had them when you were quite young. So I think your wife was 19 and you were 21, if I recall correctly. And today your son is 51 and your daughter is 48. And you also have seven grandchildren from 25 to 13. So you really have all the ages and you've gone through, you know, one or two things about parenting. So that's very interesting. Um, I know that you've, you've written 11 best-selling books. And if I recall correctly, uh, you have worked with families, children and parents since 1971 in the field of family psychology, in which you have a master's uh, since also 1971, I believe. Um, and what I found particularly interesting the last time was we, we, you spoke, you said, um, or you referred to yourself as an opposing voice in the psychological correctness, if I get that correctly. And you told me the last time you regarded as a renegade in the field, why, in, the parent, in the psychological field around parenting. Why is that? Can you elaborate on that? Well, the, the parenting paradigm that uh, was marketed to the American public and through America basically to uh, the first world uh, in the late 60s and early 70s was a paradigm that stood in 100% opposition, Philip, to 
the understandings that people had brought to the raising of children before that time. Uh, so I was raised uh, in the 1950s. I was born in 1947, raised in the 1950s. And my mother, a single parent for the first most of the first seven years of my life, raised me according to very traditional, biblically-based understandings uh, that had been handed down through the generations for literally uh, several thousand years. Um, there is no evidence whatsoever in the historical record of uh, Western civilization or any other culture group for that matter that uh, the understandings that governed the raising of children uh, changed at all during that time. So what we now call parenting was not progressive at all. It did not change with the times. It remained the same. And in the late 60s and early 1970s in America, um, the mental health community spurred on by several people who identified themselves as experts in the raising of children. Um, the the uh, mental health community um, marketed to the American public a completely different, radical uh, parenting paradigm that um, uh, incorporated none of the features of the old paradigm, um, constituted a completely different set of understandings concerning children and parental responsibilities. And uh, we here in America, and again, uh, by uh, osmosis, uh, the rest of the first world, um, began following these psychological pied pipers. And uh, the result of this, Philip, has been a disaster. Um, we now are dealing here in this country, I'm not aware of the statistics elsewhere, but ever since American parents began listening to psychologists and other mental health professionals tell them how to raise children, the mental health of American children has deteriorated at least by a factor of 10, at least. So, whereas I went to a high school of 5,000 students in the early 1960s, 5,000 students were in my high school, um, there is no record of any student during the four years that I was there committing suicide Today, statistically, in a high school population of 5,000 per year, you're going to have probably three to five suicides. And that's just one indication of the mess that uh, psychological parenting theory has caused. We are dealing here in America with 17 million children being on one psychiatric medication or another for one psychiatric diagnosis or another. Attention deficit disorder, clinical depression, bipolar disorder, uh, things that were, you know, when I, was, when I went to high school, uh, I knew kids who were kind of odd. I knew kids who were kind of strange. Um, but Nobody had to be removed from school and put into a treatment facility. Um, the stuff that we're dealing with, especially in America today, it's, uh, it's shocking. And it merits that people stand back and take a very objective look at what American parents have been told for the last 50 to 60 years. Well, no, well, I've got one question there. What is the concrete change that parents have made when you said there's a uh, there's been a paradigm shift in the 60s and 70s? What is the concrete change in behavior before 60s and 70s and parenting now? 
Well, there are many facets to an answer to that question, Philip. It's a great question. The, uh, probably the number one feature is that the American family has shifted from being adult-centered, marriage-centered, to being child-centered. So it was my understanding as a child that I was to pay attention to my mother. Um, it is today's mother's understanding that she is to pay attention to her child and that the more attention she pays to her child, in fact, the better a mother she is. Well, what young mothers today don't understand because they don't have the experience that a 72-year-old person has is that a mother in the 1950s would have regarded that idea as absurdly ridiculous. That it was the mother's job to pay attention to the child? No. It's the child's job to pay attention to his mother. And uh, because it is the child who is the pupil, he is the student in this relationship. And he is not going to learn what he needs to learn unless he is the person paying attention. Um, we also shifted from the understanding that it was a parent's primary job, and this is a traditional biblical understanding, to impart cultural and character values to the child, to the contemporary idea that it is the parent's job to promote the child's achievement and accomplishment. So uh, well, are they exclusive? I mean, those are not exclusive, right? You can you can teach values and still. When you say promote the child's accomplishments, what what do you mean exactly? Well, I mean that it's uh, regarded by today's parents, and again, I have to say, especially here in America, because I, I don't know what the situation is elsewhere firsthand, but it's the understanding of today's parents, Philip, that one of their primary jobs is to see to it that their children make good grades in school, for example. Well, that was not, and, and my mother eventually obtained a PhD in the sciences and taught uh, at the university level. An extremely intelligent woman who valued education uh, to the max. But she felt that it was, that my achievement in school was my responsibility, not hers. Today's mother in America, the typical mother in the middle and upper middle classes, truly believes that it is her responsibility to see to it that her child's achievement is, uh, is appropriately excellent. Mm. You know, what you're saying is you're not responsible to your children. Sorry, you're not responsible for your children. You're responsible to your children. Well, in is a sense, correct? it can be... Yeah. It can be uh, expressed that way. The mother has become the mother in America, and especially the mother. I mean, the father is participating this in this to a certain degree. But I have to say that the um, the new psychological paradigm was more successful at seducing women than it was at seducing men. But the American mother has become, and it's almost the norm in this country, Philip, that she has become an enabler. She's all too often in a, in a very uh, mutually self-destructive, codependent relationship with her child. But you no longer see it because this codependency is so ubiquitous in America today that, again, this appears to be normal. This appears to be the way it should be done. And so no one questions this, really. And so Going back to your first question, this is what I have been doing ever since I came to these realizations or began to come to them in the early 1980s. I, up until that time, was simply promoting the party line. And in the early 1980s, I began to realize that there was something fundamentally wrong about this new psychological parenting paradigm And I began to express that through my syndicated newspaper column. 
and I began to express it in my books, and I began to express it in my public presentations, and uh, uh, it, it, it was like uh, being a political liberal who suddenly comes out as a conservative. Uh, I, 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 uh, the, the flack that I received was unbelievable. My licensing board tried to take away my license. I had to hire attorneys to retain my license. Uh, 10 years later, they tried to take my license again. And, you know, usually when you try and take someone's license in the mental health field, it's because the individual has engaged in an inappropriate relationship with a patient or a client. Uh, that wasn't the case with me. They just simply didn't like what I was saying. It was like they, they, they had no appreciation for the fact that in America we have something called the First Amendment, which protects free speech. Yeah, but what is so problematic about what you're saying? I mean, you're not propagating violence or hate speech you know like why is it so difficult and then i, I want to speak specifically with that question and then i would like to go uh around talking about dads right because that's what we're here for so i want to know for instance how we can support mothers as dads uh in today's times with parenting but why is it so difficult for for other people that you have an opinion that might differ you know what, what, what is so what well, is the big controversy I Uh, you know, the, uh, the old child's tale of the emperor has no clothes. Well, what I've done is I've, I've, uh, and by the way, they, they have never, the, the, uh, the official authorities in the mental health field, they have never proven that anything I am saying is wrong. They simply don't like it. And, My assessment of this, Philip, and I believe I am correct, is that uh, I, I don't think this is paranoia, in other words. Um, what I believe is that uh, through my books and my newspaper column, which is still ongoing weekly, and my public presentations, um, I'm, I'm convincing people that they don't need psychologists to help them solve the child-rearing problems that people are going to see psychologists about. And so okay, I'm, yeah. I'm disrupting their business. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I want, I'll come back to that later, to some of the views. Can you talk a little bit about how, as dads, we can support Mums in the home. You said something very important already in your in your intro, which was um, something along the lines: the philosophy of fatherhood is very simple. It's it's being a good husband, right? Just elaborate a bit on how we can support mum. Well, going back to the shift from being an adult-centered uh, family to being child-centered um, in our family culture, uh, the relationship. As that occurred, the relationship between husband and wife began to unravel. And those roles were the roles that people primarily occupied in the 1950s. Uh, you, know, you, you called your father dad, but there was an intuitive understanding that he was in much more of a relationship with your mother than he was with you. And likewise, You know, you called your female parent mom, but again, there was the understanding that she was in much more of a relationship with her husband, your father, than she was with you. As uh, we shifted from that understanding to the understanding that it was primary, that the primary roles in the family were not husband and wife, but rather mother and father the American marriage began to unravel. And that unraveling is reflected not only in, in a huge spike in the divorce rates since the 1950s, but is also reflected in the fact that uh, when I begin to talk about this in front of an audience 
and I ask people in the audience, maybe 500 people, uh, am I describing the situation in your household? Uh, nearly everyone in the audience uh, recognizes that or affirms that I am describing what's going on in their home, that they are occupying the roles of mom and dad predominantly. And I've even, I've even um, done some informal research and have determined that in the average American household, People are occupying, the adults are occupying the roles of mom and dad 90% of the time. And they're only occupying the roles of husband and wife about 10% of the time. And uh, looking back again on the 1950s when the divorce rate was very low um, and child mental health was much, much better. Uh, those numbers would probably be almost reversed. Um, mm. and, and when my mother remarried, um, I would say that my mother and her second husband occupied the roles of husband and wife 80% of the time, and mom and dad 20% of the time. And when I talk to people of my generation, you know, people 65 and older about their childhood experience, they affirm that probably that those numbers approximate uh, what was going on in their households as well. And one of the things I say, Philip, over and over again, every opportunity that I have to say it, is that there really is nothing that secures a child's sense of well-being more effectively than the knowledge that his mother and father are in a committed relationship with each other. So in other words, for those two people to pay attention to one another and for there to be, uh, from the child's perspective, an obvious commitment between these two people, more than anything else, that's what imparts well-being to a child. Because what it imparts is the sense that these two people working together are taking care of me. And I don't have anything to worry about. I believe that the tremendous, uh, and I mean tremendous, uh, increase in... Uh, child and teen anxiety disorders and child and teen depression uh, is primarily due to the fact that um, despite their good intentions, the husband and wife in today's family are not communicating to the child that their relationship is one of primary commitment. They're paying entirely too much attention to their children they're uh, including their children in entirely too much decision-making. They're giving their children entirely too many choices. Um, they're talking entirely too much to their children. And um, it, it's, it, it's uh, the, the, the masquerade here is that all of this is masquerading under the uh, the idea that that all of this attention and talking and doing that's going on in the child's direction is evidence of true parental love and true parental caring. And what we need to recover, uh, especially in America, but I, I think talking with people in in other countries as much as I do, and I've spoken a lot in, Europe and England, and uh, um, I've been invited to South Africa, but I haven't uh, haven't ever gone. Um, but my understanding is that this is what's happening elsewhere as well. We need to we need to restore tr the traditional understanding that you know, yeah, children need love. They they need love. They need caring. They need unconditional love. But they also need unequivocal authority in their lives. 
And that authority is, uh, is communicated best by two people who are occupying the roles of husband and wife, not mother and father. Um, I can see myself in many of the things you say. We spend a lot of time uh, catering for the children's needs, so to speak, maybe sometimes too much. On the other hand, I have to say we have five. Well, now they are, you know, three and a half and five. And toddlers and, and, and such young kids just need a lot of time and admin. That's, that's undisputable. <laughs> different, different situation than many, I guess. However, I do agree that the, the parents' uh, relationship is the foundation for a healthy family. It has to be. And so what we've done, I told my wife, um, separation is off the table. It's not an option. So that, you know, we, we will stay together, at least from my side. And so she doesn't have to worry about that. And that is always clear. And so the rest we can always work out. That's between the two of us. What, what I do have to say, though, is it is very difficult for us to find time and to spend the time, or at least it feels that way, because the children, they need a lot of attention. And when you say display authority, how do you do that? with this, like Concretely, how did you uh, display authority with a three-year-old or a five-year-old when they have a tantrum? How do you organize how do you get a three-year-old to understand? It's, you know, you can't really reason with a four-year-old, can you? And how does that work? Well, it's a good question. There, um, there is no doubt about it that infants and during infancy and early toddlerhood, a child needs uh, a um, a lot of attention. Certainly, much more attention than the child is going to need at five, six, seven, and uh, certainly by the time he's a teenager. Um, the analogy that I use is, um, is rooting a plant. So when you first put a plant in the ground, uh, you need to, to give it a lot of attention. You need to water it. You need to fertilize it. You need to stir the soil around it. Uh, you, need to, um, you need to prune it. Uh, but as the plant grows, uh, you need to do less and less of all of that. And this, the same is true of children, that during the first two years of life, you're really rooting the child in the world. And the, that rooting process requires that you give the child a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of attention. Between uh, the second and third birthdays, and this is a very traditional understanding, it was, it was just so intuitively understood that nobody ever really wrote it down. But between the second and third birthdays, what should be occurring and what used to occur was that the special circumstances that defined the parent role during the first two years uh, were basically left behind. And the parent recovered their more legitimate roles. And so during the first two years, to make this very concrete, uh, of a child's life, you do occupy the role of mother and father uh, predominantly. But by the time the child is three years old, the roles of husband and wife should have been restored. The necessity of the first two years has elapsed. And so we have this transitional year between the second and third birthday. And during that transitional year, the parents recover the primacy of their marriage. They recover the roles of husband and wife. And that's why I call this period between the second and third birthdays the hump of parenting. And I call it the hump because, uh, for one reason, because most parents in America, they're not getting over the hump. And so what we, f what we discover with a four or five-year-old child is parents who are still predominantly occupying the roles of mom and dad. They've never really recovered their marriage. And uh, the child has never fully outgrown toddlerhood. 
So the four, five, six-year-old child is uh, exhibiting toddler characteristics. He's throwing tantrums when he doesn't get his way. He's refusing to do what he's told at a knee-jerk level. Um, he's very impulsive. He doesn't think before he acts. His attention span is very short. Most people don't realize that these problems really should have been resolved by the time the child was two and a half or three years old. Yeah. <laughs> I have many of those. My kids have tantrums, also the older ones, the five-year-olds. So how do we concretely resolve that? I mean, don't say <laughs> work on the relationship because that's clear. What can be prioritize the relationship with the mother what can we we do concretely in order to in your in your view uh restore or get over the hump and um also i want to know for instance i really really value one-on-one -on -one time with children with my children do you do you uh, suggest that that we shouldn't do, do that or we should do that less or we should do that in at a different ratio Two questions. So first one, how can we um, get over the hump better? Let's say the children are six and eight and they're still tantrums. What, what do you do then to rectify the issue in your view? Well, uh, the, the problem, Philip, is, is, that, uh, is not that people aren't doing uh, the right thing when a child throws a tantrum, for example. The problem is that people are not occupying a position of authority. And parents are not properly occupying authority. And if you've ever, and, and everyone has, everyone listening to this podcast can relate to this, uh, everyone has, has been in the presence of a person who properly occupies a position of authority. And you realize that that is not about methods, techniques, and strategies. It's about an attitude. And the problem, as I see it, is that parents are not occupying that attitude properly. And it's that attitude that communicates to the child uh, that you are running the show. And you communicate it, if you possess that attitude, you communicate that to the child very calmly and very matter-of-factly and very straightforwardly. And because you communicate it calmly, matter-of-factly, and straightforwardly, without any emotion involved whatsoever, it's just simply because I said so. You're doing yeah, what yeah, I told so, you to mm -hmm. You're doing what I so, tell you to do, not because mm -hmm. I offer you the right reward, mm -hmm. not because... I threaten you with an awful punishment. You do what I tell you to do because I'm telling you to do it. I don't have to justify any instruction that I give to you. I'm an adult. You're a child. And it's that attitude. When I begin describing it, Philip, young parents today, they, they look at me <laughs> with the shocked facial expression because they've never heard this before. You know, what they've heard is, well, you need to sit down and you need to negotiate with your child and you need to understand your child's feelings. And, you know, what they've heard is psychobabble. And I'm telling them, look, your child needs you to be an authority figure. And here's how to be an authority figure. It's not about time out. It's not about taking away um privileges, those things have their place, but that's not what it's about. It's about an attitude that you need to possess, you know? And if you go into a workplace and you watch a person who is a good leader, uh, that person possesses an attitude. And I tell parents all the time, you've all been a exposed to that person you you know what that person looks like you know how he talks and this is what children need and to your second question you know spending a lot of time with children because you like it well i understand that philip i, I really and truly do but anyone in a leadership position which 
parenting is a leadership position. There are times when, if you're in a leadership position, you have to do what you don't really want to do. You have to do what you don't like doing. And you have to put off things that you do like doing. So in other words, and and I've been asked that question before by fathers, shouldn't I play with my children? And my answer is, really, not much. You shouldn't be down on the floor with your children very much at all, because you, you begin to become a playmate. And when you become a playmate, you're no longer an adult. They can't see your authority when you become a playmate. And unfortunately, this is, uh, in, the, uh, in the Western world, this has become the new norm of good fathering, is getting down on the floor and playing with a child and becoming a playmate. And I keep saying to fathers, look, I know you like it, <laughs> but, and, and your child likes it too, but the, being a proper parent is not always about what you like Mm. doing. It's about your end goal, which is to emancipate a competent citizen. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Totally different view (laughs) than, than the norm that you usually hear. So that's, I guess why, why it's so interesting. It's just a different viewpoint. Well, would you go, would you say, uh, going with the boys, hiking up a mountain, um, showing them how to use a knife and, and doing a, I don't know, having a picnic, something, building a hut, is that playing or is that uh, the trans- transferring of values? Because, you know, in a, because I would, I would argue it's both, right? It's, you're not a playmate in that sense, but you are doing things with them that are, that you do as a father. Um, not talking about, son- actually, you could do the same with your daughters. That is a very valuable educational kind of experience, but at the same time, it can be a lot of fun. What I'm saying is, I do think that children can make a distinction between now. Question: Can children make a distinction between now is authoritative time, now is playtime? Philip, don't and. I want to be very, very careful when I say the following. Um, when people hear me say, when fathers hear me say um, what I said earlier about getting down on the floor and playing with your kids, uh, sometimes, for whatever reason, they interpret me as saying you should never play with your child. Well, that that's not what I'm saying at all. Yeah, I, I'm saying that Uh, you um, providing entertainment for your child, that function should be minimized. Now, I would differentiate play, which I regard as pure entertainment, from what you described, taking a hike, showing your children how to use a knife, uh, et cetera, et cetera. No, that's mentoring And that is a valuable and necessary sort of thing, you know, is is to, to share with your children what has made your own life fulfilling. So hiking in the mountains uh, has made your life fulfilling. Uh, You want to share that with your children. That's not play. Uh, Even though it may be fun, it's not play because it's not pure entertainment. So I don't have a problem at all with that sort of thing, and I think that that sort of thing uh, is part of a father's role and part of a mother's role as well. You know, for the mother to uh, transmit, especially to her daughters, um, the, uh, the you know the, those things that uh, that make her life fulfilling and satisfying. I think that's equally important. John, what are things that you can share as a dad and as a granddad from your own experience that, that where I haven't gone that are super important uh, from, your, from your perspective? What can we learn from your experience as a father? Well, um, one of the things that I've learned, uh, you know, continuing 
our previous discussion is that uh, um, your primary job is not to establish a wonderful relationship with your child. Your primary job is to provide your child with unconditional love and unequivocal authority. And until a child has come to recognize the legitimacy, the overriding, all-encompassing legitimacy of your authority in his or her life, then really a good relationship isn't possible. Because until a child has recognized your authority, um, you are going to have behavior problems with the child. As the child tries to assert his authority, his will, uh, over yours. And if you really want a good relationship with your child, um, then you have to establish your authority. And establishing your authority, my experience over and over again, not only personal, Philip, but also uh, in the testimonies of people that I work with, is that once you establish your authority, your relationship with the child begins to emerge. And it begins to emerge in, in a very, very positive and mutually satisfying sort of way that wasn't possible until the child recognized you as an authority figure. So um, there is this very popular parenting adage in America, uh, rules without relationship lead to rebellion. Well, it's a very seductive kind of phrase because it uh, employs a lot of poetic alliteration. Uh, rules without re relationship lead to rebellion. Ooh, yeah. Well, no, that's not true. <laughs> it just once again points out that what may be popular and faddish is not often uh, is not often the truth. The truth is that if you want a good relationship, then your child has to recognize you as an ultimate rule giver. And by the way, when your child recognizes that you are the authority, that you are the rule giver in his or her life, suddenly and paradoxically, you don't have to give that many rules anymore. Would you say um, um, unconditional love and authority leads to a relationship of love and respect mutually? Absolutely. And could countering that, yeah? Oh, it's not countering that, yes. No, it's, I mean, not countering. In opposition to rules and uh, the, the, the sentence you said, would you rather say what I said? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, uh, you know, I, I am a uh, evangelical Christian, and one of the things I do when I'm speaking in churches, Philip, is I tell people, look, we are here as parents to represent God to our children. And... Uh, God's love for us is unconditional, and his authority over us is unequivocal. And that's what you need to communicate to your children. You need to communicate to your children unconditional love, and you need to con communicate to your children unequivocal authority. And uh, I, I have to spend a lot of time on this authority issue because a lot of people— They think that what I'm talking about is, you know, pounding your fist on the table and screaming and yelling and, and you know, threatening the child. And that's not what I'm talking about at all. Uh, what I'm saying is, if you really understand how to properly communicate authority to another human being, then you understand that that is always done most effectively in a calm manner. People who are uh, excellent leaders, these are not people who are driven by emotion. Yep, I agree with that, by the way. If I scream at, at employees, uh, <laughs> I won't have employees for a long time. Do, um, and I struggle with, with calmness sometimes because I'm, <laughs> I just flare up. But okay, different topic. Um, I want to sp speak about the concept of small mistakes because I heard that in one of the talks. I can't remember which one of yours. Um, and th those were things, very concrete, practical things. Uh, for instance, which I really liked, not getting involved in, in kids' conflicts, 
I think you said something along the lines where, um, you know, if, if two kids are fighting and, 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 and they can't resolve it, well, then they must just stay in the room until they have resolved it. But don't insert yourself into the conflict as a parent. Um, the other one I really liked was a small one. It was uh, not, not adding okay to a uh, request or a question when asking, when asking a child to do something because it kind of changes the whole meaning of the sentence, doesn't it? Can you speak it? And then there was the concept of decisiveness uh, versus best decision. Uh, not always the right decision, but decisiveness. Can you speak a little bit about these concepts? Um, because they're very concretely, and, and if people agree, they can apply them. Yeah. Um, and, and along those lines, Philip, what I've discovered is that uh, when it comes to teaching people parents, what they need to be taught in order to establish creative control of their households, um, that it really doesn't require a whole lot of teaching. It requires just a little bit of tweaking here and a little bit of tweaking there. Um, and one tweak that I, uh, I do with people that I work with, um, and I'm going to take your questions a little bit out of order here, please excuse me, um, is I point out to them that when they talk to their children, when they give instructions to their children, they more often than not end with okay, uh, with a question. Uh, so, Billy, it's time to pick up these toys, okay? Uh, Billy, um, our time is up here at the park. We need to leave and go home, okay? Um. Billy, uh, tonight for dinner, there's broccoli and roast beef and mashed potatoes, okay? <laughs> I'm not okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, it has become such habit with most parents, Philip, that they don't even realize until I point it out to them that what they think is an instruction to the child, come to the table, pick up your toys, we're leaving the park, it's not an instruction at all. It's a request. It's, uh, it's, it's language that is not uh, commensurate with being, with occupying an authority, a role of authority in the child's life, a role of leadership. That what the parent is doing is actually talking to the child as if the child is a peer. So if you're in a certain situation with your wife, and you want to leave, you know, you go up to your wife and you say, sweetheart, I'm, I'm, I'm really feeling like I'd like to uh, leave and uh, um, maybe go home and watch a movie on TV. Is that all right with you? Uh, so that's perfectly appropriate when you're dealing with someone who is a peer, is to uh, acknowledge that she may have some other idea of what she wants to do. And the two of you are going to have to discuss that and come to terms. But to use the same sort of speech characteristics when you're talking to a child creates the intuitive impression in the child's mind that he is your equal. And when children believe that they are your equal, Philip, you are going to have behavior problems. There is no doubt about it. Uh, what controls a child's behavior, and again, it's not consequences, it's this attitude that, well, I'm in charge here, and I'm sorry that you don't like me being in charge, but I am in charge, and um, uh, my job is not to uh, run things around here according to what you would like. My job as yeah. your father and your mother's husband is to run things around here in a way that is best for all concerned. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not about yeah, it's not about you, kiddo. Yeah, it's. I mean, what I agree with is uh, that, in in different words, you are not your child's friend because look at how much influence you have as a parent over your friend. Show me one of the f friends your child has that has as much influence. And so if you become the friend, you, you know, you can't be friend and parent at the same time, I guess. But at the same time, I struggle with that concept 
because I, I do want to be close to my children and I do want to spend time with them and I do want to have a, a I don't want to, not sure if I have to have a level relationship, an equal relationship, as you said, but I do want to have a close relationship, you know, and I do want them to trust me and to, to be able to talk to me about anything and to, so I'm also a couple of years younger, right? So I'm, I'm 31 <laughs> years younger than you. So I'm literally that next generation that grew up in uh in that anti-authoritarian kind of era right so it's it's very interesting um my dad is 71 so he's your age so he definitely didn't grow up in 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 that age um but it's very interesting for me to think about these concepts right so would you ever say sorry i'm deviating from the concept of of small mistakes but in, in, in the bigger kind of picture would you ever say that the child becomes equal when the child is 30? Now, out of the pure relationship, you'd probably always say the father or the mother and the father are always a figure of authority and therefore they can never be equal, right? Or would you say at a certain age, children and parents become, well, let's see, more equally so equal than not? Well, I believe the child becomes an equal when he or she emancipates, uh, not at age 13, um, because a 13-year-old is still living in the home, uh, not at 16, because a 16-year-old is still living in the home, um, and maybe not at age 20. If the child is still living in the home and the parents are providing for his or her upkeep, you become an equal uh, in the phenomenological sense of the term when you emancipate. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, one of the things that I often talk about is that the average age of male emancipation in the nineteen in nineteen seventy was between the twentieth and twenty first birthday, and that was measured in terms of complete economic and residential independence. So, the average age for the male in nineteen seventy, fifty years ago was between his 20, 20th and 21st birthday. Today, it's around 28. <laughs> and I started when I was 21 in the garage, <laughs> working <laughs> on my own company. Yeah. Do, do, you, um, do, do, do you think that used to come uh, with boys to men initiation in a sense? Have we also lost that? Um, what are your thoughts on boys to men initiation? And how can fathers facilitate that if, if you do think there's something there? Well, I think, you know, a boy during his teenage years, and this was, uh, you know, this was sort of the meaning of these rituals that used to take place in many cultures at age 13, the Jewish bar mitzvah um, and equivalent sorts of rituals involving boys primarily um, in, in many uh, traditional cultures, um, again, around 13, all of them, um, was... Uh, behind that was the idea that, that the son's role in relationship with his parents, but most significantly in relationship with his father, was changing, and that he no longer needed his father's authority in his life. What he needed from his father was mentoring, and this mentoring was for the purpose of preparing the child for independence, was for the purpose of preparing the child for emancipation. And so, at that age, the father would, you know, show the child how to build a uh, piece of furniture. The ch father would show the child how to do basic car repair. The father would show the child, you know, sort of the, the teach the child money management uh, and so on. So, that by the age of 18 or 20, the child was ready to leave. And not only ready to leave, but wanted to leave. Not because he didn't like it at home, but he wanted to leave because he knew that he was ready for that. He was ready for independence. And, you know, when you, when you realize that you are a, uh, I think one of the greatest gifts, Philip, that a father can give a son is the understanding that he is a capable human being. Uh, 
that he's never going to solve all the problems in his life. You've never solved all the problems in your life. I've never solved all the problems in my life. We'll take problems in our lives with us to the grave. But for a father to help a son understand that he is a competent, capable human being who is capable, maybe not of solving every problem in his life, but capable of dealing with it, that no problem needs to get the best of you. Every problem, if it can't be solved, it can be at least successfully handled. And I don't think, see, I don't think the role of the father in the family, this is, this is certainly true in the American family, is as dominant as it should be. And the, the mother's role is the dominant role in the typical American family today. The father's role has been diminished. And so the father's influence over the children, especially during the teenage years, is not as significant as it used to be. And I think that that is contributing to the rise in the average age of emancipation that I referred to a few minutes ago. Is that due to uh, more fathers being absent? Or why are you saying it's been diminished? I mean, I know that more fathers are absent than in the past, but is that the reason that you, you think is the reason for, for the father being diminished in, the, in his role in the house? Well, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The, mo the more you diminish the role of the father in, in the raising of the children, and, and again, I can't emphasize enough that you raise children best as a father from the role of husband. I keep telling fathers, look, <laughs> If you want to be a, the, the best father you could possibly be, the way to be the best father you could possibly be is to best be the best husband you can possibly be. But at the same time, if that's your goal, to be the best husband you can possibly be, then your wife has to cooperate in that. Her goal has got to be to be the best wife she can possibly be. And if the two of you occupy those roles, husband and wife, predominantly and effectively, you're going to be better, a better father. You're going to be a better mother. It's just you put things in uh, the natural order of priority and everything works better, you know? Yep. I agree with that because parenting is, is, a, is hard. And so, uh, you know, to not disagree... <laughs> To not, to not agree on the idea that a good relationship is the foundation for a healthy family is ludicrous. In my personal opinion, okay, my opinion. Um, to not agree that a, is. that a good relationship yeah. is, is with whom? Between husband with and the, wife? No, with the parents. Between the parents. Oh, yeah. You have to have a good relationship because it's the foundation of everything in the family. Absolutely. Right? If you don't support each other, how's it? How's that going to work? It's not going to work. You, you can't. You can't run a company with your business partner, whom you're con constantly in a, in, a, in a lawsuit with. That's not working. You know, it's just the same in, in family. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, John, is there anything else? We still have like five minutes or so, so no rush. Is there anything else that you do want to share? Otherwise, we slowly wrap it up. Uh, you know, I, I we've. Uh, in my estimation, Philip, we've had a very creative and wide-ranging conversation, and uh, there's nothing uh, in particular that I feel like we need to talk about in these last five minutes. Although, uh, as always happens, when these interviews are over, uh, I do then think of things I wish I had said. So. Yeah. <laughs> and we can always do it again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd love that. It's been fun. It's been enriching. It, You know, some some interviews like this are are very uh, they're sort of formulaic. Uh, what I liked about this is the fact that uh, um, we uh, our our points of view were not exactly the same, and um, so there's a biblical term that iron sharpens iron, and I think we uh, through this conversation we're able to sharpen one another this morning today thank you john well thank you for being on for me it was very interesting and certainly enriching and so it gives me a lot of food for thought and yeah 
thank you for that. That's what it's all about. Super. Thank you so much for listening in. I really hope you liked this session. If you did, please share this podcast. I'm sure you know someone who wants to hear this. Make no mistake, your shares are meaningful and they drive our success. So thank you for sharing. Thanks for listening in. Hope to catch you next time. Have an awesome day. Ciao.